If you were to do a survey of people, and maybe these are people that you know, people who do not know Jesus personally, have no church background, and you were to ask them this question, I'd like you to come up with four words that describe what it means to have a blessed life. Your life somehow is blessed, or maybe it's not, you would say to them, and and you want to come up with four words that describe what it means to live a blessed life. What do you think you would hear? I suspect I'd hear something around finances. I'd probably hear something about a career that's satisfying. I think I would probably hear something about health and, and, and no health issues. I would probably hear something around family. And yeah, our family is good and doing well and all of that. And, and, and this would be what would constitute uh, for people living a blessed life. Our text for this morning out of the Beatitude has a list of four words that equate living a blessed life that I dare say if you asked your non-believing, non-Christian, non-churched friends, uh, you would not get any of these words on their list. The people on the street would not equate what we're going to look at with living a blessed life. In fact, almost to a person, you would get people saying, that's actually the opposite of living a blessed life. And the words are mourn, meek, hunger, and thirst. Mourn, meek, hunger, and thirst. As Pastor Tim taught last week as he started your series on the Beatitudes, describing a blessed and better way of living. To be blessed means to actually participate in the life of God here and now on earth and to actually flourish in the life of God here and now. And the example we are to follow is Jesus as he lived on earth. If you have your Bibles, either electronically or in print form, I'm going to invite you to find Matthew chapter 5, Matthew, the first book in the New Testament. And we're going to anchor today in just uh, three little verses, uh, verses 4, 5, and 6. Let me read those uh, for you. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Each of us has some experience with those words. Mourning, for some of us, may be a relatively recent experience, uh, the, the experience of the loss of a loved one. Or it could be simply that we're mourning the death of a dream or a desire. We've been working for something, it hasn't come uh, to fruition, and there's a sense of loss in our lives. And our experience of mourning shapes how we listen to the words that we just read. It's the grid through which we at least initially come to understand this text in our own experience. And it's helpful for us to be able to identify the grids that we come to a text with. What is it that I bring to this text that I think it is saying? But my question is, is our experience of mourning what Jesus is actually talking about in this text? Is your sense of loss and grief, and for some of us it may be very raw and very real, what Jesus is actually saying in this text this morning? 
There are two more grids that are necessary for us to understand if we're going to actually understand the text. One is the grid of the experiences and expectations and understandings of the people who listened to Jesus. As this group of people sat on a mountainside listening to Jesus teach, what were they bringing to his words? What, what were their expectations? What were their experiences? How would they have heard Jesus? And then the most important grid is that one that shaped what Jesus was actually saying. How did he understand the words that he was saying. And my contention to you this morning is that for both Jesus and for the people who were listening to him teach, the grid that they brought to his teaching was the Old Testament. They were steeped in the Old Testament. It formed their understanding of who they were individually and as a group of people. It formed what they were looking forward to. Jesus quoted the Old Testament frequently to provide a foundation for what he was doing and a grid to help people understand him, his message, and his actions. And so this morning, as we walk through these three short little verses, we're going to do so looking at it from an Old Testament grid. And we're going to start with mourning. As I said, mourning for us is equated with losses and sadness, experiences that very few of us like, almost none of us would choose. If we're in it, we try to avoid it or get out of it as quickly as possible. And Jesus says this is part of living a blessed life. And candidly, that just seems a little weird. I mean, it seems weird to me that if I'm experiencing loss and grief, somehow Jesus said, you know, this is part of living in the flourishing of God on earth. I'm experiencing the fullness of what God wants for me. Hmm, okay. Is that what Jesus actually means? The blessing is actually that if we are mourning, we are going to be comforted. And Pastor Tim unpacked a little bit of that last week, how our present grieving will ultimately be done away with when Jesus returns. And this is true. We are told that in eternity, when we live on a new earth and the city of God comes down and, and God actually inhabits a new planet with us, all tears will be wiped away and there will be no more mourning. So it is a, a true statement. But is there another dimension to our mourning here and now? And I think there is, and I think that the word comfort, the blessing of comfort, actually provides us with a very significant clue as to what I think Jesus is getting at. His hearers were steeped in the Old Testament. They knew it incredibly well. And when they heard words, it would trigger texts for them in their mind. And the word comfort would have triggered in the minds of Jesus' hearers and in his own mind two incredibly significant passages out of the Old Testament book of Isaiah. Isaiah 40, verses 1 to 11, and Isaiah 61, verses 1 to 3. Let's start with Isaiah 61, which reads like this. 
The Spirit of the Sovereign Lord is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim freedom for the captives, and release from darkness for the prisoners, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Now, for many of you, that actually rings a bell. You go, I have heard those words somewhere. And where you've heard them is in Luke chapter 4. Because at the beginning of his ministry, as is recorded by Luke, Jesus is in a synagogue, and he picks up the scroll of Isaiah, and he opens it to this very passage, and he begins to read. And when he's finished reading, he hands the scroll back to the attendant, he sits down, and then he says, Today, this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. And Jesus is shaping his ministry on the basis of these words out of the prophet Isaiah. It's fascinating where he stops reading. It's actually in the middle of a sentence, and he stops. Here's what the rest of the passage actually says. And the day of vengeance of our God to comfort all who mourn and provide for those who grieve in Zion, to bestow on them a crown of beauty instead of ashes, the oil of joy instead of mourning, and a garment of praise instead of the spirit of despair. They will be called oaks of righteousness, a planting of the Lord for the display of his splendor. The ministry of Jesus had to do with comforting those who mourn. The second text is Isaiah 40. Let me read that. Comfort, comfort my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and proclaim to her that her hard service has been completed, that her sin has been paid for, and that she has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. A voice of one calling, in the wilderness prepare the way of the Lord, make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Now, for some of you, you are hearing the familiar strains of Handel's Messiah in your mind, and you, you're singing along, and you realize that that passage goes on and talks significantly about the comfort that is coming to Jerusalem. So let's answer this question. Why did the nation of Israel need to be comforted? In other words, what was the context of each of these passages out of the book of Isaiah? Because understanding that is going to be helpful understanding what Jesus is saying. They are addressed to Israel during the time of her exile. And as many of you know, the exile was that experience in the nation of Israel's life when God removed them from the land that he had promised to give them and actually had given them, and the reason for their removal was their continued disobedience to him. And in spite of sending prophets for 400 years to help them correct what they were doing, they refused to, and so God finally took them out of the land and removes them for 70 years so the land can be purified. But if we, and so that, that's significant reason for mourning. I mean, God gave them this land, and now they are in exile, and they're mourning the loss of the land. 
But if we look more closely at what the spiritually perceptive are mourning, we see something incredibly significant, and it's significant for us. It relates to what set the nation of Israel apart from all the other nations of the world. It was not so much the law of God, although that did, but it was actually the presence of God. The presence and the glory of God is what set the nation of Israel apart from all other nations on earth. It was what actually led them out of Egypt, that formational Exodus peace, where the nation of Israel was formed into a people. They were led out by the glory and presence of God, in a, and it was visible. There was a pillar of cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night. And this presence of God actually resided in the tent, that the tabernacle that traveled with them, to the extent that when Moses would go in there and meet with God, he would come out and his physical features would glow as a result of having been in the visible, tangible, physical presence of God. And so his face is glowing with that. There's a fascinating story in Exodus chapter 33. The nation of Israel has disobeyed God yet again, and God and Moses are having a conversation about this, and God goes, I'm done. That's it. I am done with these people. I am not going to go with you into the promised land. I'm going to send an angel ahead of you, and the angel will go with you, but I am not going. And Moses' response is fascinating. He says to God, do not lead us up from here. We are not leaving here unless your presence goes with us. And this is after Mount Sinai, where they had been given the law. After God had taught them, this is what it means to be my people. After the Ten Commandments. So they had their theology, and all that would have gone with them. And Moses goes, we're not moving a single step unless your presence comes with us. Because, loved ones, it's presence that makes the difference. And then we, we, we go 400 years forward to when King Solomon builds the temple. And at the dedication of the temple, he is praying, and the visible presence of God comes and fills that building, driving everybody out of it. They can't stand to be in his presence. The nation of Israel was intended by God to be his representative to all other nations on earth, and it was his presence and his glory dwelling in the middle of her in the temple that made her that. Now you may be sitting there thinking, okay, this is fascinating, Terry, but what in the world does it have to do with mourning? Well, we're getting there. Something incredibly significant happened 
before the exile. And remember, the two passages out of Isaiah are spoken in the context of exile, and they're mourning the exile. And something incredibly significant happened before the exile that almost no one noticed. And it's recorded for us in the book of Ezekiel, chapters 8 to 11. And there is a vision given to the prophet Ezekiel. And what happens in that vision is that God's presence in progressive stages leaves the temple. It rises above it, it moves to the outer courts, it moves to the walls of the city, and then ultimately it leaves. And the presence of God leaves the temple and leaves the land. And everything carried on as it did before. All of the prayers, all of the sacrifices, all of the rituals continue as they did before because nobody noticed that the presence of the Lord had departed. And what is really significant is that after 70 years in exile, when the, when the nation of Israel comes back into the promised land, they rebuild the temple. And the presence of the Lord never fills it. God's presence never comes back into the land after the exile. Which means that the exile has actually not ended. Yes, physically they're back in the land, but the presence of God has not returned. And spiritually sensitive people, and we meet two of them in the birth story of Jesus, when after, eight days after he is born, he's brought to the temple to be dedicated, and we meet two incredibly spiritually sensitive people, Anna and Simeon. And if you remember the story of Simeon, he is looking for something. And what he's looking for is the consolation of Israel. We console people who are grieving. And he realizes the presence of God has not come back and he's waiting for it. And he recognizes it in Jesus. And Jesus has a group of people on a mountainside, and he says to them, you're blessed because you're going to be comforted. And the comfort is this, God's presence is back. And not simply God's presence, but God himself is actually back in me. Jesus is God in human form, walking the land, talking with people, touching people, healing them, touching the impure, raising the dead. God is revealing himself in a way that he's never revealed himself before. His presence is here. He himself is here, and he's not behind a curtain 
where only one man, the high priest, only once a year after a ton of sacrifices could go in for only a short period of time. Jesus, God himself, is here, and he's walking the land freely, and you can interact with him, and you are comforted. Now, there's a couple of takeaways for us in this. The first one is a warning. It is possible for the presence of God or the Spirit of God to leave and nothing visible changes. In our churches, in our institutions, and in our lives carry on as they always have. We do the same things. We carry on with our prayers and our worship and our responsibilities, but the presence of God is gone. And what sets apart the people who follow Jesus is first and foremost the presence of Jesus. The lack of the presence of God in our lives should actually lead to mourning in us. We ought never to become used to living without the presence of God. And loved ones, it's actually quite easy to do because we have a whole set of religious rituals that carry us through. And so the question to you and me this morning, and believe me, I've, 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 I've been in this text for several weeks now wrestling through these questions personally. And the question is, how sensitive are you to the presence of God in your life? And it's not just a feeling. Because God is close to the brokenhearted, which is also a pretty intense feeling. And he's close to them. But how aware are you of the presence of God in your life? The third takeaway is that God actually longs to be present with us. The word for comfort, you will be comforted, is the same word that is used of the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit is called the Comforter. Jesus longs to be with his people by and through the Holy Spirit. But the Holy Spirit only comes and lives where he's welcomed and where he's submitted to. And finally, the final takeaway is that the full realization of our comfort will happen on the new earth after Jesus has returned. As much as the Holy Spirit does in our lives now, there is still more that we will experience at the return of Jesus. Well, that brings us to the second word that none of your friends would say describes a blessed life, and that is meekness. The meek are blessed because they're going to inherit the earth. So what's that all that about? Donald Trump, Vladimir Putin, and the to- any of the top 50 CEOs in the world would not be described as being meek. In fact, if you had to choose 20 words to describe them, meekness wouldn't be on it. That would, you know, meekness would probably not make a list of 100 words to describe these people. So how is it that the meek are going to inherit the world? What's that about? Well, there are several points that we need to consider in this. The first one is that meekness is actually a way of relating. In the time of Jesus, friends would treat each other with meekness. And what that meant was they would be patient, 
They would come alongside to comfort and lend a hand, and they would be gracious to their friends. Enemies treated you harshly and sternly and oppressed you. So meekness is a relational term. We talked about the grid. What was the grid that the people listening to Jesus would actually have as they heard his words? And one of their grids was this. The people of Jesus' day wanted someone to come and out-Roman the Romans. They were an occupied land. The Roman army was in their land, and they felt that there was no way they could be the people of God with an occupying force in their land. And so what they wanted was somebody who was going to come along and use the same way of thinking and the same tactics and power that the Romans used, except they would be more powerful than the Romans in order to defeat them. And they would kick the Romans physically out of the nation of Israel. And that is what they were looking for. Out-Roman the Romans. They wanted a national kingdom the way David and Solomon had one in their day. And there is a huge caution in this for us as followers of Jesus. Because we easily buy into this way of thinking. If anything is going to get done, we think, we need to do it the way we see things getting done in the world around us. So we need to seize political power. If we're going to save Abbotsford and Cannon, it's going to be because we have Christians in political positions who are actually going to pass laws that honor God in some way, shape, or form, and we're going to get this thing done the way God wants it done. We're the ones who need to have control. We need to be strong. We need to be political. And if necessary, we need to be manipulative at points to get things done. And we forget to ask this question. Is this how Jesus did things? The third thing we need to understand is that Jesus relates to us in meekness. As I said, most of the people listening to Jesus wanted a ruler who would ride in on a war horse and conquer the Romans with power. Zechariah chapter 9, verse 9, describes what they are going to get and what they did get. It says this, Rejoice greatly, daughter Zion. Shout, daughter Jerusalem. See your king comes to you, righteous, victorious, lowly, and riding on a colt, the foal of a donkey. The word lowly is actually the word meek. And the king that's coming is not an earthly king. The king that is coming, Israel's only right king, is actually God himself. And he is coming in meekness, riding on a donkey, the foal of a donkey, the colt. And we see this approach most vividly in the ministry of Jesus. Jesus, who does what only God does, controlling the wind and the waves, something only God does in the Old Testament, 
the only one who can bind the strong man, Satan, and he does. And then casting out demons, one of whom he meets in a graveyard, a place of death, who has the name Legion. And a Roman legion would have been the, what, that, what that referenced. That was their point of reference for that word. A Roman legion was 5,000 men. And there's this demon called legion in this man who runs to meet Jesus and falls down in front of him. And with a word, Jesus casts out this demon. And the demon asks to go into a herd of pigs, and Jesus gives his permission, and the pigs run off the cliff and into the sea, and it's a whole other story about what all that's about. But Jesus has just demonstrated that he is God himself in the flesh, standing among his people, setting this man free, and restoring him to all that God intended for him. And the people who witnessed this happen say, excuse me, Jesus, um, just wondering if you mind going back across the lake. Don't really want you here. That, that was a pretty heavy economic price to pay for the king of the universe to show up here. So if you wouldn't mind, could you just kind of get back in the boat and leave? And Jesus does exactly that. He lets people made in his image, who he made, tell him that he's not welcome, and he walks away. And not only does he walk away, but he actually lets them crucify him. The one who in this very moment holds everything together says, you can not only reject me, but you can kill me. That's how Jesus relates to us. Jesus comes in meekness because we can say no to any and all of his desires to us. And when we operate in meekness, which is strength under control toward people, we imitate Jesus and we represent him as he is. And when we do that, we inherit the earth. And inheritance is an interesting concept. Inheritance is God's way of reminding us that we do not and are not to live isolated, self-sufficient lives. We receive an inheritance. We don't earn it. We receive the earth as an inheritance. We don't conquer it. It's given to us as a gift of sheer grace. And we are to leave an inheritance for other people. To be sure, our inheritance from God, while experienced somewhat right now in the power of the Holy Spirit, comes in its fullness when we will live with him on a new earth in the city of God. Well, that brings us to the final two words that people would not have chosen. No one would say that to live a blessed life is to not have enough food and to be continually thirsty. That's probably not what it means. Hunger and thirst represent the two most basic needs in our lives, something to eat and something to drink. And Jesus is talking about the most basic need in our lives. 
But hunger and thirst is also a way of talking about a strong desire, the overwhelming passion in your life, that which drives you, the ambition that is rooted deep within that you may not even fully understand. And for some of us, that is success. And for some of us, that is financial success, needing money. And for some of us, that's recognition. And for some of us, that's the need to feel secure, and so I need to control everything in my world. And for some of us, that's the acceptance of our peers. I had a fascinating conversation with one of my former elders. I ran into her in a parking lot and she was talking about a friend of hers who says that she is absolutely captivated by, by the number of people that like stuff that she posts on Facebook and Twitter. She knows exactly how many likes she receives for everything because she is captured by that. That's so crucial. The acceptance of other people is so crucial to her. It's what drives her. For others of us, it's the need to be loved. I just need people to love me. Whatever it is, Jesus is talking about that driving root ambition in our lives. And he's saying that the blessed life, the person who participates in the life of God on earth is the one who understands that their most basic need and driving passion of life is righteousness, <clears throat> the pursuit of righteousness. So what exactly is righteousness? Very simply, righteousness is God's way of making things right. It's how God makes things right on earth. And it has three applications. Righteousness is how God makes our relationship with him right. Through the life, the death, and the resurrection of Jesus. And righteousness for us means not a transaction of God. You, you come to me and I repent and you give me forgiveness and we're good. Righteousness means I submit my entire life to you, Jesus, as my king. I've submitted everything to you as king. The second dimension of righteousness is it's our transformation into the image and character of Jesus. It's actually seeking God's dealing in my life. God's dealing with my sinful habits. God's dealing with my ways of thinking and ways of acting that are actually contrary to what he wants and pursuing his way of actually making things right in my life, his way of meeting those incredibly deep needs in my life. That's what it means to pursue righteousness. And finally, it's a social righteousness. This is where we act on the concerns of God for the poor and the oppressed of the world. It's where we, we actually seek to bring his kingdom and his purposes tangibly into their lives and situations. It's, it's frequently a reflection of the prophetic writings of the Old Testament, and it's reflected in the life and ministry of Jesus in his compassion for the poor, his compassion for the sinful, his compassion for the broken, his compassion for the downtrodden. This is where we adopt meekness in relating to people rather than the prevailing way of our society. This is where the values of Jesus and his kingdom drive our thinking and drive our acting rather than the values of our society. And those who have as their driving passion God's righteousness will be filled. Filled, meaning eating or drinking until you want nothing more, will be it's actually in the passive tense 
in the original language, meaning that God does this. We do not fill ourselves. God fills us. We seek, God fills. The more we seek, the more he fills. The more we desire, the more he fills. Well, as we've walked through this text this morning, Jesus, through the Holy Spirit, has been speaking to you. And there have been words of encouragement to you, and I hope you've heard them. And there's probably been some words of challenge. Embrace and affirm the encouragement. And sometimes the challenge or challenges that come our way can be overwhelming. And, and we become aware that, that we've been falling short of what Jesus is actually talking about. And what do we do when that happens in our lives? Well, at that point, it's a, it's a pretty crucial point because the enemy of our souls wants to come in and just sow a huge amount of discouragement and derail us. My encouragement is that you spend a few minutes talking with Jesus about what he wants to do in your life regarding what we have just walked through. And I know, as I said earlier, as I prepared in the week's prior to being here, there were a number of things that the Lord touched for me in these texts. So how do we respond? In a conversation with Jesus, ask him, what is one thing, only one thing that he desires to do as a result of this morning? If we choose more than one, we will tend to be overwhelmed. And perhaps it has to do with living in the awareness of his presence. And maybe you've just been going through the motions, and this morning Jesus in his graciousness has come to you and said, you know, there's, there's a dimension of my presence that's missing in your life. And a fresh infilling of the Holy Spirit is what you need. Will you invite that today? Perhaps it has to do with how you're thinking about and functioning with people in the world around you. It has actually very little resemblance with meekness. And Jesus is inviting you to cooperate with him. And to cooperate with him by his Holy Spirit as he empowers that in your life. Perhaps it's an awareness of the driving passion of your life. This, this way of God making things right actually has been about pursuing your own way of meeting your needs, and simply doing your own thing. And today, Jesus is inviting a course correction in your life. And a course correction simply looks like repentance. We repent. We agree with what God says to be true, and we repent. We literally change directions. So together with the Holy Spirit, choose one thing. Confess, repent as necessary. Invite the Holy Spirit to continue to do his work in you, as he seeks to shape the character of Jesus in all of us. May you be filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. Amen.